News of the Times, Frightful Fridays, The Crumbles Murders, Part 2, The Murder of Irene Munro. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, we look at the first of the two crimes in the famed beauty spot of the Crumbles in Eastbourne. The Crumbles murders refer to the horrific murders of two young women in this Eastbourne beauty spot. The murders took place in 1920 and in 1924, not very far from each other. The 1924 butchering can be found in episode 170. Two young women visiting the area, two horrific slayings, roughly four years apart in the same location. In August 1920, lovely 17-year-old Irene Monroe decided that she would vacation on her own rather than go on holiday with her family as usual, in her isolated cottage on her own for the first time. Irene struck up a friendship with two men in the area, offering to show her the sights. We take a look at the second of these two horrific crimes to these two young women in a backdrop of scenic beauty in today's episode of Frightful Fridays. We hope you enjoy the show. The crumbles is the term crumbles in the context of Eastbourne refers to the Eastbourne crumbles, which is an area of coastal erosion and cliffs along the English Channel in Eastbourne, East Sussex, in England. A geological treasure trove, the Eastbourne location was, and still is, a popular vacation spot featuring a long shingle beach by the sea. Crumble's Murder 1. The Murder of Irene Munro. Pretty, accomplished, 19-year-old Irene Munro, a typist in London, was having her first holiday on her own. She had the option to holiday with her mother in Edinburgh, but had chosen instead to spend her fortnight holiday by the seaside. The landlady of the cottage she rented from spoke of how she had warmed to Irene, a quiet girl with moderate habits, who would usually spend the morning going for a walk and would be back to the cottage no later than 9pm. We start the investigation with reports from the landlady of the rented cottage regarding the missing and finding of Irene. From the Guardian, the 23rd of August, 1920, Eastbourne Mystery. According to Mrs. Winniat, the young woman was of a very respectable appearance and tidily dressed. She appeared to the landlady to be the usual type of honest London business girl. Miss Munro's Movements The story so far as to Mrs. Winniot can carry it was that Miss Munro called at her house first on Monday afternoon, but there was no accommodation and she arranged to come back the next day. She arrived at about 10.30 on Tuesday morning and had breakfast. She seemed a very nice young woman, Mrs. Winniot told a press representative, of decent appearance and looked 
perfectly respectable. Her movements while she was with me were those of an ordinary visitor. She came to meals regularly and she had no callers. Referring to several letters which arrived for Miss Munro, Mrs. Winyett said that one came from Scotland and another bore the postmark of South Kensington. On Thursday she went out between two and three o'clock in the afternoon, saying that she was out going for a walk to Hampton Park. She didn't return. I waited up for her until after midnight. On Friday there was no sign of her. I did not know what to do. I thought she might come along during the day, and then we opened a letter which had come for her from Edinburgh, and found it was from her mother at Portobello. We intended sending a telegram to her mother on Saturday morning, when we saw in the local paper an announcement that the body of a young woman had been found on the crumbles. The reported body found on the beach tied in with the unusual disappearance of her lodger, who had been a quiet girl of regular habits. From the Daily Herald, the 12th of October, 1920. Mrs. Winyett, with whom the girl was staying at 393 Seaside's Estates, said that she was of a quiet disposition and seemed very much depressed on the day of the tragedy. She came to stay with her on Tuesday, August the 17th from London and said she was all alone, her mother having gone to Edinburgh. She usually went out every morning, returning at about 1.30pm. On the Thursday, she went out about two o'clock and said she was going to Hampton Park, which is only one and a quarter miles from her lodgings. She failed to return in the evening and the police were communicated with. Several letters for the girl from Kensington, where her mother lives, and Edinburgh, and a registered package containing money she had asked for from her mother arrived in the morning following her disappearance. The next day, a young boy, having a picnic with his mother on the shingle beach nearby, fell over a foot sticking up out of the ground. Boy's Discovery Nothing more was seen or heard of Miss Munro until little Willie Weller who had been picnicking on the crumbles with his mother on Friday, August the 20th, stumbled across the girl's feet in a hole in the ground. There are a number of depressions all along the crumbles, the boy stated, only the feet were protruding. He ran back and informed Miss He ran back and informed Mr Land, the occupier of the house in which they were staying. Mr. Land went to the place and dug the body out, later calling the police. The girl, whose face was so badly disfigured as to be almost unrecognisable, was dressed in a, a black straw hat, black shoes and stockings, and a long green coat trimmed in black fur on the cuffs and around the hem. The spot where the body was found lies midway between the cliffs and the road in Eastbourne 
and Pevensey, and is composed of pebbles and long grass. At night it is a lonely spot. There are three old watchtowers, one inhabited about two hundred yards away. Police were called to the scene to discover the highly battered face of a young girl only recently buried within the shingle beach. The face of the victim had been so badly disfigured almost to the extent of being unrecognisable. The teeth were missing and there were punctures on the mouth and forehead and by the left ear. There was no doubt that the case was one of murder as the wounds could not have been self-inflicted. Witnesses were called forth to try to identify the body. Mrs. Winniet, the landlady, stated, I could not recognise her features as they were so badly knocked about, but I knew at once the green coat she had been wearing with the deep fur upon it. Investigating the scene, the police initially thought Irene had been shot with the puncture wounds found on her face. However, a bloody brick nearby soon became identified as the murder weapon. The medical autopsy revealed the horrific nature of the wounds that Irene had sustained. Pretty girl buried in shingle, murdered whilst on holiday alone. Dr. Adam and Dr. Cannon, who conducted a post-mortem examination, are of the opinion that the girl who had been outraged, raped, met her death about 18 hours before the discovery, and that the death was due to wounds inflicted by a heavily blunt instrument, probably a stone. The post-mortem examination revealed that the girl's lower jaw was broken while the upper jaw was fractured. Several teeth had been broken and there were wounds on the lips and the right temple. The girl was not a maiden. It appeared that the girl had been stunned and that a blow on the left side of the face with the brick had proved fatal. Mr Webster, the Home Office analyst, announced that there was human blood on the ironstone brick. It was thought she was murdered some little way from the place where she was found, and her body dragged along a railway track which runs near. Rusty iron bolts, shovels, nuts and metals and sleepers are lying about, and three small huts are near at hand. Police noted that Irene had no valuables on her upon discovery of her body. However, she was known to have some money and jewellery which she always wore. From The Guardian, the 23rd of August, 1920. Woman's body buried in sand. Eastbourne mystery. The girl carried a blue silk handbag about nine inches long and six inches wide with a plain white metal snap fastening with a handle to pass over the arm made of the same material as the bag. She also habitually wore a nine-carat gold ring 
with a round cluster of four or five or six small brilliants or white stones. She is believed to have had between two pounds and two pounds ten in her possession, but the bag, ring, and money cannot be found. The police are anxious to trace the two men described and the bag and the ring. Residents of the small area were questioned. What came out repeatedly was that Irene had been seen in the company of two men walking towards the Crumbles on the 19th of August in the afternoon. From the Guardian, the 21st of August, 1920. Woman's body buried in sand. Police search for two young men. Yesterday's message from Eastbourne state that the police are still searching for two men who were seen walking along the high railway on the Crumbles towards Pevensey Bay between three and four o'clock on Thursday afternoon. It is assumed the murder had been then committed and the men were walking away from the scene of it. The police state that about four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, Miss Monroe was seen walking past 393 Seaside, where she had been lodging. She was then with two fairly tall young men, dressed in grey suits with herringbone pattern. Just before this, she had come out of the house where she was staying and turned towards Eastbourne, apparently to meet these two men, neither of whom had a hat on. Almost immediately afterwards, she came back and walked towards the Crumbles, the three being in conversation together. Miss Monroe is stated to have been seen by several cottagers with two men on the road near the Crumbles between Eastbourne and Pevensey early on the evening of Thursday. It is stated that one of the men had his arm around her waist. The scene of the murder is a lonely spot. If there had been a struggle before the murder was committed, few traces, if any, would have been left in the loosed shingle. The Arrest The police made careful inquiries and finally arrested two young men, Jack Alfred Field, 19, and William Thomas Gray, 20. The former had been in the Navy. The latter man had been discharged from the Army as medically unfit. The case and its brutality were all in the papers and helped to bring witness statements forward. A conductor who knew the two local men well, a barmaid who also knew the two men, and locals who had seen the three walking together all came forward to point the police in the direction of Field and Gray, two locals who were friends with their common ex-military background. The two claimed adamantly that they were not near the Crumbles on the day of the 19th, rather that they were in Pevensey according to their statements. Police attempted to trace their alibis, only to find that their alibi was concocted. All inquiries led the police back to Field and Gray. Alibi's story. The two men 
were released after they made a statement to the effect that they were in Pevensey with a servant girl on the afternoon of August the 19th. They accounted for their day with a wealth of detail. According to their statements, on the morning of August the 19th, they were chatting to two barmaids in a public house. In the afternoon, they were at Pevensey, where they remained until four o'clock. They returned to Gray's home, where they had tea prepared by the latter's wife. Afterwards, they had visited the Eastbourne Hippodrome, where Field had paid the attendant two shillings, which he had borrowed three months previously. Although at liberty the men were clearly still a little nervous, the newspapers talked incessantly of the two men who had been last seen with the girl, and Field and Grey decided to concoct an alibi. A servant girl called Baxter went out to post a letter one evening when Grey and Field approached and asked her if they could walk home with her. She was not averse, and the trio met again. The following Monday they went for a walk on the golf links and picked blackberries. They attempted to induce her to say that they had been with her at Pevensey on the afternoon of Thursday, August the 19th. She would not agree to do so and said, I am afraid of getting murdered myself. The girl approached the police and told the story. In the meantime, police had been busy attempting to verify the lad's alibi statements. The police were interested in the girl's story, especially as two fellow servants at Baxter's testified that she did not leave the house on the afternoon of August the 18th. Powerful evidence of her identification has meanwhile come to light. Field and Gray were seen on an omnibus on the late afternoon by the conductor who knew them both well. He saw them get off at the archway and meet a girl who wore no coat and carried a little bag. The girl had walked toward them, saying, Hello, Jack. He identified the girl with a photograph of Irene Munro. A labourer also came forward with valuable evidence. He was sitting in a railway hut near the Crumbles when he saw a girl pass with two young men. One of them carried a yellow-coloured stick with a dog's head on it, such as a stick was later found in Fields' house. With the preponderance of evidence accumulated from witness statements, the attempted concocted alibi story, the newfound riches they seemed to have whilst unusually without any funds, and the discovered physical evidence of the walking stick, the case went to trial. Marshall Hall, one of the England's greatest defence lawyers, took on the hopeless case of Field and Grey. Attempting an alibi. Whilst awaiting the trial to begin, another attempt was made in prison to get any fellow prisoner to give them an alibi. This was a fail. Field and Grey 
were now lodged in Maidstone Jail, where the latter destroyed whatever chance they had had. While at exercise, Gray was alleged to have told a fellow prisoner named Darlington to say that they had been to the circus together on the afternoon of August the 19th. The prisoner immediately reported the alleged conversation to authorities. The trial. The trial took place with much media coverage. Reasons for the sensational aspect of the trial was the brutality of the crime. The salaciousness of the story with the pretty young girl vacationing on her own for the first time and the murderous outcome upon meeting two local lads. Also, with a famed lawyer, Marshall Hall, leading the defence, it was questioned whether even his celebrated skills could get the two men off in what seemed to be irrefutable evidence. Blow from Brick The trial opened before Mr Justice Avery at the Sussex Assizes. Marshall Hall appeared with Mr John Flowers for Grey and J.D. Cassell's defended field. Not guilty, sir, chorused the two prisoners. The medical witnesses agreed that death was due to shock following concussion and that the brick could have caused the injuries on the left side of the face. Witnesses A bar made from Albemarle told of the prisoner's visit there on the evening of August the 19th. The two men had beer and asked her to go to the Hippodrome with them, but she declined. She had noticed that they were smoking expensive cigarettes and drinking bottled beer. She had never seen them do that before. The bus conductor insisted that the two men had boarded his bus at 2.45 on August the 19th. He saw a girl greet them at the archway. The conductor positively identified Irene Munro from a photograph of her given to him. The prosecution called more witnesses who swore that they had seen the two men walking with a girl towards Crumbles. Witness after witness identified them as the two men seen to have been talking and laughing with the young woman on the afternoon of August the 19th. Defence The two men now declared that they had not been to the Crumbles at all and had not been in Baxter's company on August the 19th. They alleged that they had been to Pevensey together on the afternoon of August the 19th and had set up the false alibi because the newspaper talk had frightened them. Realising his case was almost hopeless, Marshall Hall applied himself with great vigour to questions of detail. Marshall Hall's closing arguments lasted almost two hours. He pointed out the absence of a motive for the crime. In the judge's summing up, he directed the jury to ask themselves two questions. First, does the evidence satisfy us 
that the murdered girl was in fact that afternoon with the two men going towards the crumbles. And secondly, were the prisoners out that afternoon with a girl going towards the crumbles? Found guilty. After an hour, the jury returned to the court, the formal question of verdict having been asked. The foreman answered guilty in a firm voice. The jury, however, recommended both men to mercy on the grounds that the crime was not premeditated, a strange suggestion since they have been proven guilty of murder and possibly the result of Marshall Hall's famed persuasive skills. Both men's faces blanched when they heard the guilty verdict and Field gripped the dock rail as if to steady himself. There was a dramatic pause and Mr Justice Avery addressed the prisoners. There was no emotion in his voice as he said sternly, Jack Alfred Field and William Thomas Gray, you have been convicted of a foul and brutal murder and the defence which you have concocted has been demonstrated to be untrue as to the satisfaction of the jury. You must now prepare yourselves to undergo the penalty which the law enacts for such a crime as you have committed. From the Daily Advertiser, the 20th of December, 1920, Eastbourne Murder, Field and Gray Convicted. Jack Alfred Field, 19, and William Thomas Gray, 20, who were charged with having murdered Irene Munro, a pretty London typist, whose body was found on the August 20th with the head badly battered on a lonely part of the Shingle Beach at Eastbourne, have been found guilty. The jury added a recommendation to mercy to its findings. The judge sentenced the men to death. Appeal. The two prisoners appealed to the Criminal Courts of Appeals, stating to type with the attempt to shift blame on anyone else. Both men now accused each other of the sole responsibility of the crime. While counsel addressed the court, warders sat between the two former friends in preparation for a scene. Both men were too cowed to attempt hostilities. The Chief Justice declared that Field and Gray's stories were fabricated, put forward in the last desperate attempt to escape the consequences of their crime. The appeals were dismissed. The appeal was rejected. They were both to hang. Both Field and Gray were executed at Wandsworth Prison on February the 4th, 1921. Neither man confessed to the crime before the execution. That concludes this episode of Frightful Fridays, The Crumbles Murders, Part 2, The Murder of Irene Munro. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. Catch up with our previous Frightful Fridays episode, where we look at The Crumbles Murder of 1924. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, 
Our goal is 1,000 subscribers, and with the fantastic support of our wonderful News of the Times community, we are making great progress towards that goal.